kind of looking for a certain kind of woman tonight because I'm I wanted to make some stew, some long pig stew. It's only like human beings that are so arrogant so as to believe that they're better than every other kind of animal out there. I mean, a worm, you know, worms don't don't think about oh my god, why did you know my mother, you know, mama worm like get eaten by the fish, you know. Fish eats the worm and that's that. It's completely accepted by the worm and the fish. And the small fish gets eaten by the, like the big fish. And if it was so wrong to eat it, then why would it taste so good? Hello and welcome to a part of our Scaritage. Today, my co-host and I... Oh, and that's me, Adam Clark. But wait, who are you? You didn't say your name. And I am Sarah Chamberlain. There we go. I was frightened. I thought it might be some sort of ghost. Today on A Part of Our Scaritage, Adam and I will be discussing the, the 2007 movie Long Pigs. Now, did, prior to the seeing this movie, did you know what a long pig was? Yes, I did. Because I'm obsessed with cannibalism. You know that about me look at all my faves <laughs> <laughs> and that is a fascinating thing to me that we are going to get into i'm sure you're excited to just dig into me about this i am excited <laughs> yes as though i'm digging into a nice long pig <laughs> before we get to our cancon checklist as to why this film uh, is classified as canadian proudly so why don't we offer our listeners a summary as to what happened in log pigs sarah gladly adam The 2007 mockumentary Long Pigs follows two amateur directors as they document the day-to-day -day life of a cannibalistic serial killer out on the snowy, dark streets of what isn't supposed to be Toronto, but <laughs> is so clearly Toronto. <laughs> the serial killer, Anthony McAllister, welcomes them along in a jovial manner, walking them through every step from the hunting of his victims to the killing, preparation, and eating of them, and finally, even the disposal of the remains. Things seem almost lighthearted between the trio for a while, as they talk over human meat-based barbecues about Anthony's dream to write a cannibalistic cookbook, or even when their car breaks down with a body in the trunk. But eventually, as certain events begin to bring uneasy change into Anthony's life, like the death of his elderly mother, so does his personality and welcoming attitude toward the filmmakers begin to change. Anthony finally snaps on them in the end, and a confrontation leaves each of them either dead, wounded, or imprisoned. That brings us to our CanCon checklist. And sure enough, as you said in your summary, this movie is desperately, desperately trying to cover up the fact that it is Toronto. <laughs> there is mention of the National Guard, which we don't have in Canada. It was very obvious given the scenery as well as especially Anthony's accent that this is very, very Ontario. The Canadian accents are just running rampant in this one. It's like listening to an episode of The Final Cafe. <laughs> Morley got me to try what a human face tasted like on a Sunday <laughs> afternoon. Rising inflection, falling inflection. <laughs> but there's that. But the entire cast and crew are Canadian and rumor has it one of the co-directors slash co-writers of this movie owns a prominent toronto eatery which may or may not have a special that is called the long pig in honor of this movie but that's just a rumor i haven't been there i haven't verified i didn't know that oh and on the note of trying to hide its canadianness at the very end when we see that Anthony's friend, who had been previously charged in a, with a murder he did not commit, is getting off. 
not sexually, but it's, it's being the charges are being relinquished. Uh, we see an American Department of Justice flag and not a Canadian one. So they're trying very, very hard. But you know what, Sarah? Pretending that you are American is a proud Canadian tradition. <laughs> Right, this may be the most Canadian CanCon checklist of all. Yes. It's trying so desperately to pretend you're American. <laughs> what it was more common for Canadian film and TV growing up, I'm somewhat older than you, but not by much. So I got more of a taste of the 80s than you did. That's really the difference between us. I know, I'm so jealous. Because I'm an 83 baby and you're an 87, are you not? 87. When we were kids at slightly different ages, like it was super, super common for uh, Canada to pretend to be the States in, in stuff that was filmed here, where there was Canadian. Canadian produced or uh, American produced and simply shot here, a la The X Files, where Vancouver was everywhere. Yeah, they could be in the Gobi Desert, but it's still goddamn Vancouver. <laughs> And yet, to me, there's something so very pointedly Canadian about Toronto standing in for any town USA. Like, there's nothing specifically American about it. None of the accents suggests a particular area of America. It's just, oh, it's just, it's certainly not Canada, which I think is like a super Canadian thing to do. On that note, you were pointing out a couple of the things that they tried to do to like make it not Canadian. The Department of Justice flag. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Which I have so much so many questions behind why they were so desperate to make this seem like it like were, did they think it was going to get so big that they didn't want it to be connected to canada because they thought if people in the states think this is the states they'll like our movie more <laughs> like, what was the intention <laughs> whereas you see other movies like ginger snaps say that we you know already reviewed yeah. where they're just so they're like by the way this is canadian every five minutes <laughs> that missing disparu poster <laughs> <laughs> it's just it's it's unavoidable yeah. but i mean that happens in this movie too that's the funny thing they try so hard but one of the things they did was um did you notice that when their car breaks down there's they're asking do you have triple a does anyone here have triple a and I, that stood out so much to me because i'm like it's caa here what are you doing <laughs> another blatant attempt to seem american triple a is like american automobile association or whatever the heck it means, right? I don't know. <laughs> That's the dead giveaway. I understand if a fair bit of money is on the line and, and it's a co-production and for whatever reason, the American side of things is insisting that Canada passes as the US. When it is a micro-budget movie shot on standard def SD cameras that was made by a couple of Canadians that stars Canadians there's no American money or anything being exchanged. And there's no reason to set it in America. I wonder why they did. Because I think that if you just embrace the fact that they're in Toronto and this is <laughs> these are clearly Canadian guys, like they filmed them playing hockey, for God's sakes. This movie takes a hockey break just like Ginger Snaps. If you're going to try so hard to make your movie less Canadian, mm -hmm. when they do that hockey scene, it's a, it's a, like a beer league hockey thing. Yeah. One of the guys is wearing a Scarborough jersey. It says Scarborough on it. <laughs> I didn't even notice. That jersey's in the shot like four times. It's not even hidden. <laughs> I was thinking... <laughs> I'm like, you're going to go out of your way to say uh, AAA, but you're not going to hide this Scarborough jersey. <laughs> <laughs> During a hockey game, no less. Like, you failed miserably. <laughs> I get the pressure on Canadian filmmakers to appeal to the American market. However, 
that applies only when you have a potentially big commercial product. I get when those pressures are there. The movie in which a cannibal eats prostitutes and feeds part of the meat to his own mother, it's implied, is not a hugely commercial. That's that's shot on standard def cameras. That didn't have mainstream appeal from the script stages. Like, there's no way. There's no way they thought that this was going to be big enough that it's like, oh, man, the only thing that will hold us back is Canada. No, and if anything, like, I think that had they embraced, they were filming it in Toronto, like, it would have given it, like, a lot of local flavor it would have given personality to the movie by reflecting what the city actually is as opposed to constantly trying to hide it so i had not seen this movie before but it was added to our list of films to watch based on your recommendation what is it about long pegs that stayed with you or made made that really big impression when you first saw it and is that still there upon rewatch this week I will say that I do like this movie for what it is. I think the special effects are really well done. So that's like a selling point in in and of itself. I like this this mockumentary style. It's like Leslie Vernon, but even less goofy. Like this is sold as a horror comedy, but it's not that funny. It's quirky, but it's not like laugh out loud Leslie Vernon style mockumentary. What was your reaction? Because you just saw it for the first time this week. The movie... (laughs) Rests on the shoulders of one Anthony Alviano, a.k.a. Anthony McAllister. His performance makes this movie, and I think that he is terrific. I love that there were so many ways that you could play this part. And he comes across as, like, superficially charming, not weird at all, but there is, like, an underlying menace to him. Like, when he turns on the filmmakers very late in the movie... It's genuinely tense beforehand because you know what's going to happen. It's not a surprise. When he's getting angry with them, but like bottling it down, because again, he gets by in society by being kind of like this big jovial guy. And that's still there, but there's like, no, 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 he's planning now. He's plotting something. Definitely. I have to praise this movie for its creativity and its effects. I was genuinely grossed out by something, which might be the first time that's happened on this show. When we see the first victim, who is a slightly overweight prostitute, because, of course, he wants meat on the bones. He subdues her and then hangs her upside down by her feet, cuts up her clothes so that she's totally nude, and then reaches in and has to tie off her anus so that she does not (laughs) shit all over the place when he's hacking into the body and it's like that makes total sense and that's probably a thing as he points out it's like oh yeah they do this with farm animals it's like oh that's probably true i just never thought about that before (laughs) um and and even though it's like okay surely they cut to a dummy and and, you know had a, a balloon in the dummy to be the you know like intestinal tract it was tripe actually oh i see well apparently they had big bags of pig related organs lying around to use whenever they needed it (laughs) because the movie is shot in sd it has the vhs effect of when you see certain films on vhs because of the degradation of quality and things are like a little bit darker special effects and lighting is sold really really well because it's hidden by the deterioration of vhs and the downgrade in quality and because this is shot on sd cameras when they cut from the actual actress's body to a dummy 
and he reaches into her ass and ties off her anus. Oh, I never thought I'd say that. You're welcome. Yeah. <laughs> It was like I, I didn't I didn't realize they had cut to a dummy. So when that happened, I was still I still felt like I was watching a real human being. I'm like, it just happened and I was so horrified. I, I love that this movie has an all time kind of gross out scene like that. Like that's more than any blood that's in the movie. It's like that's what's really horrifying, is just being like, Oh, I gotta I gotta prepare the meat first so the body doesn't shit itself. It's like, oh god. I'm very happy I know your reaction now to it. Because on the commentary when they were at that scene, they said that that part is like the part like with the whole tying off the anus thing and everything that people either decide if they're going to keep watching or stop watching the movie. Like it's it's way too much for some people. And they said that the surprisingly the places sold best in was Newfoundland. <laughs> They said the theater just erupted into like laughter and joy when that was happening. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is definitely something that I would say is is notable and uh, a part of, uh, I guess, my culture is that the Newfoundland sense of humor tends to side very dark in my experience. So that makes sense. That's that's a nice moment. <laughs> that's good to know <laughs> that they all love that scene. <laughs> Whereas in other theaters, people were like asking them how they can, like they had they had even gotten, like had people asking them how to delete it off of their computers and stuff because they were so appalled by the movie. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. That's great. The other scene, and this totally caught me off guard and totally caught me by surprise, is, uh, okay, so there is a little set piece where the car breaks down and they have to get a spare tire from a farmer who's got pigs and cows. There was a scene in, in that whole section of the movie that just grossed me out. And that's when the farmer was talking about how pure like pig fat is and you can just eat it on its own. And he reaches into this old thing. It looks like, oh God, I can't even tell you what it looks like. It might be too disgusting to say, but he just reaches into this barrel, barrel, this, this bucket of white cream. And he's like, you can just eat it pure. And he puts it in his mouth. And I just like, oh, that was nightmarish. I never want to see that again. So Adam, that entire thing was improvised. They went there. They said that guy walked them through. The only thing they did was put a little bit of blood on his face and stuff, you know, and try to make it look a little more menacing, I guess. He walked them through. They, He wouldn't stop talking. He was so, like, nice, but just so proud of his pig farm. <laughs> That's sweet. He's showing them everything and bringing them around. And then he does that. Like, he just went up and did that with that bucket of fat. And he says, he says, mm, it's great like this. So one of the directors was like, okay, well, sure, I'll try some. And you oh. see his hand reach down and like picks him up. Well, he actually ate that. And he's like, he said, it was probably a week before the taste left his mouth. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, my God. Oh. oh, I can't even. <laughs> you are big into cannibal movies. You're big into can. If there's a cannibal movie being made, unless it's an Italian cannibal movie, in which case there's like a 90% chance that real animals will be slaughtered on screen. Barring those, you get super excited. You're all about cannibal. And at the same time, Sarah, how long have you been vegan? I'm a complicated person, Adam. <laughs> 
<laughs> no, everyone contains multitudes, but I'm, I'm, that's why I'm curious about this. There's at least something very interesting in this contradiction that I want to bring up. Yes, how long? How long? Probably over five years now, but I've been vegetarian for like well, like two decades or something. Because what I find interesting is not necessarily that it's like, oh, the vegan enjoys cannibal movies. That's 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 no different than me watching <laughs> watching movies where people get violently murdered. It's not that. What I find interesting is that cannibal movies and the consumption of flesh does not affect you at all but you told me about the first time you watched a thing on shutter and it's where a vegan character is forced to eat rotten meat and that got you i still have nightmares (laughs) oh man yes so this is this is the contradiction i find super interesting why is it you know when leatherface and family sit down to eat a human being it does not reach you but a, a a character who, if the actor was vegan, they were surely eating tofurkey. But when they when they had to eat like rotten rotten meat, that was nightmarish for you. And I'm I like, have you ever thought about that? Like why that is? No, yeah. Like I mean, as much as I'd like to be able to explain the dark recesses of my mind to you, <laughs> that's why this podcast is here. I think like that one's definitely just context. Like I think I would. I have been just as equally disturbed by, you know, the Hewitt family forcing a non-cannibal to eat human meat mm-hmm. as someone forcing a vegetarian to eat rotten animal meat. Like, it's just like, it's the idea of being eating something you don't want to eat and being, and especially when it's that repulsive to you. Right. And I mean, have you seen the movie? It's disgusting. It's like- What all movie me- is it? What movie is it? That's the question. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I- I just remember you telling me it was on Shutter, but I don't think you told me what it was called. Oh man, I I feel really bad, and it's like it's Clive Barker, I believe. Oh, I think it's Dread because it's based off of a short story, I believe. But that scene is like it's really well done, and it's horrific. Like by the time she eats it, because she's refusing to eat it, by the time she caves because she's starving and it's been days and she's going crazy and she she can't get out until she eats this thing. It's like blue with raw and it's got like maggots on it and stuff so like anyone would be repulsed watching someone eat that <laughs> like when it's someone like willingly being a cannibal i love it and i don't know why <laughs> that makes sense because you know you can picture yourself as the person being unwillingly fed meat whether it's you know the uh, the cannibal family from texas chainsaw or the uh the character in the clive barker story what's interesting is that you've referred to the cannibals as, as the, the hewitts i know <laughs> making, making it very clear that it's like sarah is clearly talking about the uh remake uh, uh cannibal family and not the sawyers from the original series <laughs> I knew you were going to, like, literally the second that word left my mouth, I thought you were going to call me out on it. And then you did it. And I was like, oh, he didn't say anything. One is not more real than the other. I just find it's like, oh, this is this is clearly the sign that you like the remake more. Or at least like hey, where hey. the remake went. Yeah, okay. Let's not pick favorites here. Okay, I don't have to pick a favorite between the original and the remake. I take it all back. Because you know what? Sawyer only gets introduced in the second movie. Exactly. They're unnamed in the first movie, which I kind of prefer. Exactly. I prefer the original. I I do like the second movie, and I even do like the third movie. Hey, the third movie is underrated. Leatherface is underrated. Yeah, I completely agree. And I also like the Matthew McConaughey movie. (laughs) (laughs) That movie totally sucks. What are you talking about? (laughs) Um, I like them all. Leave me alone. (laughs) 
<laughs> it turns out to be an X-Files experience where it's like, ah, we created the spookiest thing thanks to the Illuminati. It's like, what? <laughs> That's why I like it. It's so awful. It's so dumb. Like, who wrote the, Like, how did they get there? How did it get there? <laughs> oh, Matthew McConaughey and his robot legs. Oh, my God. <laughs> but he's, I can't believe that Oh, my that God. Exists. He's giving it his all in that movie, though. Like, he's really just into that role. <laughs> he is one of the rare performers who could make a bid for hammiest performance in a Texas Chainsaw Massacre movie. Because there are some hot <laughs> contenders for that. Yes, exactly. But in the remake, it's so much more important to the story that they're like the Hewitts. Mm-hmm. So that's why that name just kind of comes to you, right? Because again, like the Sawyers weren't in the original. Like it wasn't something that they just drilled into you. But the remake definitely like they made it a thing, right? Yeah. So. And also like Sawyer is a terrible pun. Uh, and I'm glad they're not called the Sawyers in the remake. I think Hewitt is also, uh, I think Hewitt is a brand of chainsaw or power tool. So there's still kind of a pun name, but it's less dumb than we're the Texas chainsaw family and we're the Sawyers because we saw your family. Like that's too dumb. That's too dumb to exist. It's kind of interesting when you see cannibal themes in movies because it makes you think about preparation of meat. I'm actually curious about you, your view of that. I mean, like, I'm sure it didn't do much, but it's like for me, like, I'm so repulsed by that stuff that they show. And I'm like, phew, thank God I don't eat that. (laughs) But you're like, oh, that's pretty nasty. (laughs) Yeah. That's kind of the odd thing about meat eating is that it's almost totally social. In the sense that you are raised as though it is normal. Because for so many families, especially going back, even just going back a couple of decades, it's just sort of raised and treated as normal. And it's like it's a part of your diet. And you develop a taste for it. Yeah, and they talk about that in this movie quite a bit. Because he's constantly defending his cannibalism by referencing, like, you know, history of cannibalism and such. And, and that's right. And, he's, and he even describes the arrogance of, like, why would you value one kind of meat versus the other? Now, there are scientific reasons why we don't eat each other yeah like obviously there's a thousand arguments there but it's like i do like that that's the view they give the cannibal and he sells it really well yes it's an interesting thing and like this always comes up when cannibalism is played with really explicitly i see the preparation of humans in this and it's clearly like echoing a slaughterhouse as most cannibal movies do when they show the preparation of a body and then you know, I see the I see the live pigs and cows, and it's like, oh yes, and they will be turned to meat, and I have no reaction. And then I see the guy reach into fat, which technically I have eaten because what is bacon but fat? What is a pork rind, which I made the mistake of eating once? <laughs> a flavor that haunts me to this day. <laughs> now imagine eating that in its rawest form in the by oh. the fingerful. <laughs> Oh, Jesus. It looks terrible because it looks like it looks like the farmer just reached into a bucket of old cum. Like that's <laughs> oh, God. It's the most revolting thing I can think. It's not even fresh, Sarah. It's old cum. It's vintage. It's so disgusting. I'm just like and the fact that it wasn't at all like sometimes in movies it's like, look at this disgusting thing they're eating. Like uh and and it turns out, oh, it's just like a bunch of gummies stuck together or something to give the implication that it was a, a organ. But 
This time it's like, no, that old man literally just took a big fistful of fat and shoved it in his mouth. And then the director was like, oh, I'll try some too. And then he said he almost like died. (laughs) The weird thing about like any kind of animal consumption, any kind of uh, any kind of meat eating is that like it's it's social. It's something that you're kind of like raised into. And as such, you're raised to not really question it and becomes such a part of your life. And because it's, you know, food. Um, or in the case of milk, drink, <laughs> or in the case of broth, both, um, <laughs> you go with it because otherwise you're questioning where food comes from. And then you and, and then uh, if you do that, it's like, well, what else am I going to eat? And then you have to think about it. It's like, now I have to learn how to cook this. I spent 20 years learning how to cook the other thing. <laughs> yeah. And I like that most like cannibal based movies go that route where it's like it's this um, learned, usually familial behavior. Mm hmm. But this one doesn't do that. Yeah, he's got a pal who is into the ribs that he makes and knows where it comes from. But that's it. Like, And, and of course, we do get his origin story, but it's not like his mom or his, his unseen dad got him into eating people. He was with a prostitute, as he normally frequents. She dies. He wasn't going to call the cops and go like, I have a dead prostitute or a dying prostitute. Please help. So he decides to eat her instead. I guess because the bug in his brain of what do people taste like had always been there. Yeah, and he gets a little sentimental with it too by saying that, you know, he kind of liked this girl. He had he had been with her many times. So after she died, it was like after he ate her, he she was with him forever. Like it was almost like he had immortalized her through that. <laughs> yes, by making her into a goddamn stew. <laughs> it's like I don't think he knows how the digestive system works. <laughs> The other actors are not as good, but Anthony Alviano is great. I will just cut in to say that I think uh, the woman playing the behavior, she was really good. A Kelly McIntosh, I believe her name was. Oh, the behavioral therapist? Or the behavioral analyst? I think she was fantastic. Apparently, from what I was looking up there, she came with all that research on her own. Like, that wasn't in the script. Yeah, like, she did loads of research and brought it with her, and she just says it in the movie like she has studied this her whole life like she's so matter of fact about the stuff she says and i like having that woman's perspective in the movie too because it is like you know i think she's the only woman with dialogue she's the only woman in the movie who's not a victim yeah yeah exactly even though they do kill more men than women in that movie she is the only woman with like actual dialogue and everything she's saying is like grounding all of the crazy stuff that's happening and she's actually trying to give it substance i do like her character and her role and i will say that even though we only see his upper lip throughout the movie the guy who plays tony prince who's the conservative radio asshole is uh, very believable as an ezra levant Time. Yeah, yeah, he definitely has a great voice for it. I will say that those shots start to get to me. How so? That I totally get what they were going for, and it's like a good shot, but he is so like it's too close. He's got too much hair on his face. It's really <laughs> that close to his like the camera's pressed right up against him, and it's almost distracting. And he keeps like licking his lips and stuff. And I get like, <laughs> yeah, like he's supposed to be grimy and stuff. I totally get it. But I just after like Six times, I was like, ugh, I can't look at this guy's mouth anymore. (laughs) (laughs) That's delightful. I love that in this movie, the the main thing you were grossed out by was an ordinary man's face. (laughs) Of all the things. Oh, God, I sound awful. I'm sorry. (laughs) 
It's like, my God, he had to moisten his lips like a person. Like, this is totally uncalled for because he, he was definitely good. I don't know why I'm being so hateful. No, I'm loving this and this is all going to be in the final edit. No. Bad news for you. No, no, I'm a jerk. Sarah Chamberlain to Tony Prince, drop dead. <laughs> it is interesting that most of the mouthpieces that we get are conservative in that you have the Tony Prince radio shock jock who's always going on about liberals. Yes, yeah, Tony Prince has the line, I hear these left-wing groups saying, if she were if she were the mayor's daughter, well, I'm sorry, the mayor's daughter is not a prostitute. And then you have Detective Walby later on saying, I leave it to the liberal side of our society to be warm and fuzzy. I'm more the reality. And that's, that's interesting paired up against the behavioral analyst who we see, because while she's not excusing anything that happened, she is explaining it. But is the movie refuting everything that she's saying by showing Anthony not to be sexually off because she talks about how serial killers have sexual problems and are often impotent, which is true. Um, and she also talks about how they come from abused homes, which we're shown. I mean, maybe it's not underlined to be totally explicit, but we're shown that, you know, Anthony loves his mom and has a really caring relationship with her. So is the movie siding with that conservative viewpoint and those characters and that the, you know, quote unquote, more liberal point of view is in the movie to be mocked because the it's, it sort of backfires if that's the case, because as you were saying earlier, Kelly McIntosh is one of the more credible people that we see as a talking head in this movie. I thought that those liberal jabs were, their commentary like that's not you know the actual side that the movie's taking but instead it's trying to say like this is like the indifference people feel and such and also i was like maybe these guys like the the viewpoint they had i almost thought like maybe they're vegetarians or something because they do go on about like oh well like at one point they're like vegetables feel pain and stuff like to try to make to make the excuse for eating human and that is like the last resort of every single angry meat eater when they're trying to like bring a, a vegetarian down is by being like well vegetables feel pain and it's like if you understand even the slightest concept of what, you know, science, you understand that like the pain an animal feels and the pain a vegetable would feel are two completely unrelatable things, if you can even call it pain. I'm not going to go there, though. <laughs> now, now, Sarah, you might think ill of me because of this, but I have to confess it anyway. Because what is this podcast, if not therapy for the both of us? <laughs> but I feel very conflicted and I'm hurt by the fact that I am causing, you know, chickens or, or cows or seals any pain by consuming their meat. But I am delighted by boiling broccoli and potatoes alive. I like that I'm inflicting pain on vegetables. <laughs> So I have very conflicted feelings about that. Yeah, well, that's that's because vegetables don't feel pain. So No, I, I was hoping that they do and that they deserve <laughs> yeah. it. It's something that a lot of people haven't heard of, I assume, which is called a central nervous system. But <laughs> anyways. But has that actually been an argument that's been used? Have you heard that? I thought oh, that was constantly. just to show that guy is a dumb character. It's one of the reasons I only use a uh, chisel and stone instead of uh, going on social media <laughs> to communicate <laughs> with people. <laughs> I see. <laughs> it's so frequently used. And that's actually one thing that in the commentary over top of that scene, because I watched the movie and then I watched it again with the commentary over top of that scene, they again, like defend that point. They say it's true. Like really? that they, they really believe like what that character is saying. 
So I'm like, well, they're idiots. That's not true. (laughs) (laughs) And so to me, I'm just like, okay, so I can kind of see that maybe these guys are just mocking liberals. But it's weird because the movie comes off as like, that's not the case to me. But then like, they're also, when they're at the beginning looking for the first victim who is a prostitute, Mm -hmm. like the directors are like, laughing about having to be in that area of town because it was filled with whores and they're using the word whore and stuff. Yeah. Oh, no. I know, right? Like, it shocked me, too. I have to tell you one bit. You don't have to put this in the podcast. Oh, it's going on the podcast. <laughs> no, uh, because it's so awful. Okay. This is up there with your Joan Greenwood impression. <laughs> I tried to get you to take that out. And it was so good. <laughs> Sarah, you are the Mel Blanc of this podcast. <laughs> You are the June foray of this podcast. So do you remember a series of commercials from back in the day for Lilydale Meats? A big banquet for 50. It's going to be great. Naturally, it starts with plump, fresh chicken breast. Lilydale. My famous three mushroom sauce. Mm. There was these commercials and they were for Lilydale chicken. And... There was, it was this like guy with this really, really like over the top French accent. That guy was in this movie. Oh, wait, wait. The owner of the restaurant? The yes, French guy? The owner of the restaurant. The French guy. Yeah. That was the Lily Meat the guy? The Lilydale chicken guy. Like he became that later, I believe. Like he was in the movie oh. first. Oh. <laughs> oh so must I have thought that was like a cunning cameo, you know? <laughs> or it might have been. I'm not sure. I can't remember which way it goes. But. Oh, wow. I was like, oh, okay. Well, this sounds like. Like, I'm like, Lilydale chicken, that sounds so familiar. (laughs) I don't even know where I'm going with this, but this is so crazy to me. This whole series of events. So, like, I looked it up to try to find those old commercials. The only versions of them I could find on YouTube is an actual YouTube channel dedicated to hating this man. Oh, no. I just looked it up. Yes. And the titles, I'm not even going to say them because they're slurs. And the channel is like... It's dedicated to hating him, and the videos have thousands of views. (laughs) But then, so for a second, I felt bad. But then I learned something through the directors of this movie, something they said that makes me so happy that people hate this man. Oh, I see. And this ties into you saying that the director apparently now has their own restaurant. Remind me to never go. Actually, I might never go to a restaurant again after this. Okay. So this Lilydale meat guy used to have his own restaurant or he worked at one or something. And he apparently, this is an anecdote that they were saying with so much humor and joy that I was like, excuse me. They were laughing. They're like, oh, he was the funniest guy. Apparently he used to expose himself in the restaurant and hide it under his apron. And he would walk around and go up to the to any females like at tables and stand as close to them as possible. Well, all his co-workers knew he was doing this. And he Aww. would just have it out. And he'd stand as close to them as possible and like take their order and stuff. <laughs> like, that is the most repulsive thing I've ever heard in my life. He's literally like sexually harassing them. And these guys were laughing like it was the funniest anecdote they'd ever said. <laughs> Wow, the Lilydale chicken guy does, well, he's, he's an awful man, but <laughs> the YouTube channel devoted to hating him really needs to rethink its strategies in terms of language. Exactly. And now I'm wondering, like, oh, my God, did that channel, like, form based off of someone finding out that he did that? Well, I wonder yeah. what, I wonder what this whole series of events, like, what happened here? 
And I love how I found all of this out through like a B movie made in Toronto. <laughs> that comes right back to what we started with, where I was like, I liked this movie, but then like I learned more about it. And that doesn't happen very often, but I started to dislike it a little more. <laughs> this is what happens when we find out where our meat or films come from. Exactly. I kind of hate movies with an overtly cynical to the point of just like overwhelming and childish kind of point of view. And you sort of get that here where it's like, you know, everyone is two-faced. Everyone is a piece of shit, except for maybe, maybe Kelly McIntosh, the behavioral analyst. <laughs> uh, she seems nice. <laughs> I'm not just saying that because she did the research. There's like nothing bad that we, that we learned about her, but everyone else comes across as like a dick. And even the the character we didn't talk about, the father of the girl who went missing because she got eaten by a cannibal. I thought he was really good. <laughs> he was great. The one part of the movie that was a bit dodgy for me, there's a sequence in which the filmmakers and Anthony visit him and they're pretending to be the makers of a crime show doing a special on missing kids or what have you. So they're talking about the case and he's talking about how like you just need to keep up hope. And the movie's kind of point of view is like skewering that bleeding heart perspective because that guy is later shown to murder the one filmmaker who survives his encounter with Anthony. And, you know, they're practically laughing at him because he believes that his daughter might be alive. And like that kind of sequence rubs me the wrong way. I think it's almost like a little too cynical. Like it feels it feels a bit teenagerish in its writing, if you know what I mean. Yeah, like I tried to... I. Th- I took the movie mostly as that the two directors were trying to stay as indifferent as possible because they were trying to be like, we're, you know, it's like when you watch a nature documentary and it's like, that baby elephant's starving. Why don't you give it some food? And they're like, we can't give it food. We're not supposed to be here. <laughs> and it's like, that's kind of like how I took these directors were just like, no, no, like we're, we're not supposed to be here. We're, we're like nobodies. So, mm-hmm. but you're right. Like, cause they do kind of egg him on and, and whatnot. Yeah, and there's, like, no reason to visit him. <laughs> like, no reason at all, let alone pull off this weird con game. And, of course, that that father is shown to snap later on, so yeah. all of his positivity was for naught. Like, that whole thing left kind of a sour taste in my mouth. Like, it seemed a little too obvious. Yeah. Regardless of the weirdness of the movie and perhaps not having the most faith in the filmmakers now having listened to the commentary. It's funny because very often when you're watching a movie, you can kind of like it. And then you start to learn about the making of it. And you like you're endeared to the movie because you find about these hardships or you find out about what like certain actors or, oh, I like this person or what they did after something. And and usually, in my opinion, it's or in my experience, it's uh, worked for the positive to learn more about a movie or the, the creator's yeah um but this in this case i was like oh i liked this movie but now it's kind of tainted (laughs) for me (laughs) when i said that there were some things that they spent a lot of money on the directors were saying that the scene where they um arrest his co-worker the other valet yeah they like spent loads of money on that scene and it's shocking because that that scene doesn't really stand out it's only a few seconds long if not a minute and because they had to hire all these like police cars and SWAT uniforms and all this stuff and like shut down that area of the street and like arrest this guy. And they said no one around there even knew they were filming. There were like people diving into bushes and stuff because the SWAT (laughs) showed up. (laughs) Which is interesting because they spent so much on that scene, but there's other scenes with police in that, that they just like stole that footage where um, when they're talking to the father and they're they're showing how the people were looking for his missing child. And there's like the park where the girl went missing and there's like cops walking around and it's completely taped off and there's cop cars and everything. They just filmed that during 
an actual event that was happening. Do you remember in Toronto when people were poisoning dogs with hot dogs and like a bunch of pet dogs died? What? No. <laughs> yeah, it was like a big thing. And I think it happened in Hamilton, too. I was living in Hamilton at the time. And yeah, like people were poisoning dogs with like poison food. So that was like, they just filmed that investigation and used it for their movie, <laughs> which is oh great. Like, I think, that, I think that's great. Like filmmaking, you use what you got, right? <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But it's interesting that that's like, these are the events that were going on. And then the other big thing that they spent, they said over around $15,000 on, that was almost all their budget, mm-hmm. was an ending that didn't happen. What? <laughs> yeah. So the ending that we got, you know, the credit that has like the credits that have like all these scenes threading through of like Anthony in jail teaching cooking classes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Apparently they filmed this huge long ending where he there's like cooking shows on TV and they're like dropping his name and like he's become really famous and all this different stuff is happening. And they're trying to show that like he becomes, I guess, infamous. And it's through all these this this long drawn out that they said people didn't respond to well at all. Like it was just too much. I was about to say, that sounds like a terrible idea. Exactly. <laughs> like I, I much prefer the ending as is. Yeah. And I have no idea how it cost as much as it did, but they said they spent about $15,000 on it. And then they just used some pieces of it to thread into the, the final bit there. And that was it. So the, the new ending was completely, you know, spur of the moment. <laughs> yeah. Cause like the most expensive thing that happens in the ending as is, is that we see a little bit of the uh, prison kitchen and we see uh, your favorite Tony Prince's lips. <laughs> a lot of that at the end. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> yeah, so they it was so low budget. Most of their stuff, they just they were just smart with it. Like, you know, when they go into the um, the nur- the nursing home to talk to Anthony's mom, like that was just where one of their relatives was actually living. So they just kind of filmed while they were in there, like all these little sneaky ways to get, to get shots. And then they spend $15,000 on an ending they don't use. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, the ironies of micro budget Canadian cinema. (laughs) Now it's a good time to ask what your scaritage moment is. If there is a particularly Canadian part or aspect of this movie that stood out to you, Sarah. I kind of had two. All right, go ahead. But I don't want to steal one of yours. Like, no, what if fire I said, both <laughs> off. Fire okay. both off. We'll see. <laughs> because as much as there's so, like so much Canadian stuff in that movie, right here at home, Toronto stuff, two things that really stood out to me was the really intense brawl that breaks out during beer league hockey, <laughs> which I've heard so many <laughs> stories from people who play hockey like you know either ball hockey or you know just a casual ice hockey that some people take it so seriously and they want to get into fights and it's like dude like we're just here to like come on this is amateur (laughs) so it just really made me laugh because they go nuts in that scene (laughs) and the other one was um which i think might have taken the cake was just how painful it was the scene where they break down they get a flat tire in the middle of a snowy road in the middle of nowhere and the only thing nearby is a pig farm (laughs) that they can go to for help (laughs) that's like (laughs) too real and too canadian (laughs) okay well do you think you covered what i was gonna pick i thought you might pick that one Uh, well not quite my uh my 
moment of scaredage here is the reference to Kreutzfeld Jacob disease at the very end of the movie, where it's revealed that Anthony's mom, her neurological condition, is likely that rather than Alzheimer's, likely due to the consumption of tainted human meat. And when this was being filmed, there was a big outbreak or scare of bovine spongiform encephalopathy, better known as mad cow disease. And so this would have been right at the time when they were shooting because they shot this movie in 2003. And that was the exact same year there was another scare. So that is so tied to the Canadian meat market that that seemed like the most Canadian moment to me. Wow, that's very specific. Mm. I like it. Wait, but was Mad Cow like a Canadian thing? <laughs> no, Mad Cow wasn't, but it did affect Canadian farmers in a big way. Yeah, it definitely in, uh, did. Yeah, because I remember, I remember there were like two outbreaks. One was when I first heard the term, I think in the late 90s. And then there was a more recent outbreak. I say more recent, more recent than the 90s uh, in like 2003. And I was just immediately thinking, it's like, wait, we're was that when this was being filmed and it was like because they they shot it and then it took seven years to find like a dvd dvd release i remember reading an interview where the filmmaker said that they didn't even know if this would ever make it on dvd wow because yeah like it did a bunch of like festivals and it won a bunch of awards at festivals and stuff i'm pretty sure and yeah and um it did like a bunch of theater runs like small theaters and that but yeah, I, I thought it had only taken like three years to get to DVD, but that's much longer than, uh, well, one year longer <laughs> still. <laughs> still much, much longer. Now, Sarah, we've, uh, we've just wrapped up this episode just about on Long Pigs, but where can people go? if they want to find out more about the show or get in touch with us. Well, if they'd like to reach us, they can reach us at scare at megaphonic.fm. And if they'd like to see any show notes or anything else on the show, they can go to the website megaphonic.fm slash scare slash five. Sarah, I'm a person who's neither you nor I, and I desperately want to reach us both and talk about things brought up in this episode or others. But... I don't like email. It's too personal. How can I reach the Scaritage hosts publicly? Adam, you could reach us publicly or even private message us on Twitter at twitter.com slash Scaritage, spelled S-C-A-R-E-I-T-A-G-E. Hey, just like the title minus the hyphen. So not like the title at all. Sad, really. Twitter doesn't use hyphens. So, Adam, do you have any information on what we'll be doing next? I've peeked into our future files. Now, Sarah, it may have occurred to you that we're approaching a rather festive season. I can already hear jingle bells in my head. That's right. So there will be snow on the ground. There will be sleigh bells ringing. uh, There will be carols sung. And you know what? What better thing to do for a Canadian horror movie podcast than to look at a famous Bob Clark movie in accordance with the Christmas holiday. I think you know exactly what movie we're talking about. We're going to be reviewing Death Dream, a.k.a. The Night Andy Came Home. Oh, Adam, we're so predictable. I'm so excited. So we've come to the end of yet another episode of A Part of Our Scaritage. Thank you for joining us. We'll scare you next time. I'm your co-host, Sarah Chamberlain. 
And I am also your dutiful co-host, Adam Clark. Don't reach into that old bucket. You don't want with the creamy stuff that's in that old bucket. Oh, God. If you have any old buckets lying around, just, just don't. In the words of a very famous Canadian PSA, don't you put it in your mouth. <laughs> Gold. Don't you put it in your mouth. Uh-uh. Tell you ask someone you love. That's right, sis. If it's okay to eat. If it's okay to eat. Like a muffin or a bee. Like a muffin or a beach. If you don't know just what it is, remember, boys and girls, don't put it in your mouth. Always ask someone you love before you put anything in your mouth. A message from Concerned Children's Advertisers.